everyone. Why don't you come and take your seat? You can bring your drinks with you. I'm going to be continuing our series in the letter to the Colossians, a series we've entitled Jesus Changed Everything Full Stop. Um, has anyone here got a brother or a sister? Brother or sisters? Yeah, I've got, I've got two brothers myself and one sister. Actually, they're some of my closest friends. Um, but we've had some interesting times growing up. One of them was when my older brother Tim went through a phase where he just found prank calls hilarious. Um, for example, um, there was one occasion when we were on holiday in Greece, and as sometimes happens, my tummy was getting used to a different diet in such a way that required regular visits to the toilet, if you know what I mean. And so on, on one occasion, I had been uh, in the hotel room and in the bathroom for really quite some time, um, when the phone rang in the hotel room. And I thought, oh, I'd better go and get that. So I went and got it. And on the other end of the receiver, I, I heard a fairly high-pitched Mediterranean voice claiming to be the hotel cleaner. And that voice explained that she had been waiting for ages, was outside, needed to clean my room, and needed to do it now. Um, this, for me, was bad news because of the state of the bathroom I had just vacated. Um, <laughs> But I thought, perhaps a little naively, it certainly sounds like this cleaner's busy, that she needs to get on with her job. And I have been in the bathroom a long time. I'd better just get out and let her get on with it. So fairly sheepishly and a little bit ashamed, with my head down, I kind of shot out there. Um, it was only later on that I found out that the cleaner was, in fact, my brother, um, who, it turns out, sounds a lot like a Greek girl. Um, that was hilarious for him. For me... I'd wasted quite a lot of time feeling fairly embarrassed for no reason. Um, sometimes it can be hard to distinguish between what is real and what is not. Easy to hear a claim and take it as real when actually, in fact, it's misleading all along. Um, and the thing is, if you're not able to distinguish what is real from what is counterfeit, you can find yourself going down a track that leads to all kinds of difficulties like um, feelings of shame and embarrassment at the thought of a disgruntled Greek cleaner. Uh, this is true when it comes to our faith as well. It's so important to be able to distinguish between genuine voices and misleading voices, uh, between truth and lies, between what's real and what's counterfeit. And so last week, Richard superbly sketched out all that Jesus is for us as God and Saviour. We, we discovered how through faith in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we are now united to him, buried with him, raised in him, forgiven through him, and victorious alongside him. That's uh, so kind of Richard's nice little syntax there. I thought that was very good. Um, Jesus is enough. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. He's God's gift to us. And in today's passage, we'll discover... The reason Paul is so keen to remind the Colossians that all they need is Jesus is that some people had come along and unsettled the believers. The Colossian church had heard, that, heard things that had made them feel insecure and concerned. Some visitors had suggested that maybe they were lacking something, some additional requirement, that they needed Jesus plus something. And Paul wants the believers to see right through those fake claims to understand that just like a prank call, who wants them to simply hold fast to what is real, to hold fast to Jesus. And it's a message that's just as relevant to us today as it was to them. 
there are all sorts of claims around as to what really constitutes genuine spirituality, enlightenment, religious truth, that will actually point our eyes away from Jesus. Even some claiming that genuine Christianity is Jesus plus something, like an additional experience or a set of requirements or a particular style of worship or the promise of prosperity. Such messages, if believed, will unsettle your peace and drive you to shore up your confidence in something other than Jesus, leading you down a track of trouble. Paul's message to the Colossians is the same as it is to us. Jesus is the real deal. Hold fast to him. He is everything you need. Okay? So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to open up in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 16 to 23. It will come up on the screen. It says, um, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, which kind of means false humility, and worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if, you still live, is still you, if, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Going to look at two main issues that come through in this passage, mostly from the first three verses, actually. Firstly, I want to ask for the Christian, where is real belonging found? How do you know you belong to God's people? And, and then secondly, how does real growth happen in the Christian life? Okay, So we're going to look at real belonging and real growth. Firstly, real belonging. In verse 16 here, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. And then in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. So clearly... Some people had come along and unsettled the Colossians by calling into question whether they really belonged, passing judgment on them, disqualifying them. And so the Colossian believers were having their sense of security undermined, needing reassurance that they, they, they're legit. And it looks like they uh, heard that there was at least two things that, they, that needed to happen for real belonging. Either, number one, things you need to do, uh, and number two, experiences you must have. Let's look at those in turn. Firstly, the suggestion that belonging depends upon the things you do. So in verse 16, Paul says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Uh, these are references to Jewish religious practices that were required in the law given to Moses, including the Ten Commandments. They're about external requirements, do's and don'ts, around foods and festivals and organizing your calendar. The suggestion seems to be that the Colossian believers need to become a little bit more Jewish, to, to be more religious in their conduct, follow certain external requirements, take on some of the law of Moses. 
Paul picks that up again in verse 21 when he, he warns the Colossians against submitting again to regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And so it seems the suggestion that has been made to the Colossians is that in order to know they are right with God and to be assured of righteousness, they needed to do certain things, to, to perform in certain ways. Their confidence needed to be Jesus plus their religious conduct. I wonder how easily can we fall into that kind of thinking ourselves, kind of measuring our standard, our standing before God based on how we perform. I remember as a, as a student um, having a meal with a friend of mine kind of on our laps in the lounge, and um, the hungry lad that I am, I just dive straight in there. And uh, I remember him looking at me with disgust and sharply scolding me, Mike, you have not said grace before you started. And I remember feeling, oh, wow, man, that sounds like a big deal. Um, now, I think it's a good practice to thank God for the food that he gives us. But it had become, in this instance, a matter of judgment, a, a matter of belonging, something that I needed to do in order to enjoy God. Perhaps we can fall into that way of thinking, maybe thinking, well, you know, I read my Bible today, I um, went to the prayer meeting last week, I bought a big issue and um, gave tea to everyone at work today. Actually, I think I'm okay with God. And the next week, um, I overslept, didn't even know there was a prayer meeting last night, there was a prayer meeting, no one told me, um, get a bad report at work, suddenly, maybe, maybe I'm not so good with God. Before we know it, our sense of belonging and confidence becomes based in the things we do, in our performance. The Colossians were being encouraged by certain people to think that way. Pick up a bit of law-keeping to shore up your sense of belonging. But of course, depending on our moral efforts can never bring us closer to God. Trying hard to observe the law doesn't make anyone right with God. Romans 3 verse 20 says... No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. No amount of moral behavior or religious or spiritual activity can make us right with God. In fact, the law of Moses, far from making us right, shows us to be wrong. That's what it does. The law, which includes the Ten Commandments, describes righteousness, but it doesn't give it to us. It describes the good life. It describes the good life we were intended to have, a life of flourishing. And we know that it's good. That's why our legal system is so greatly influenced by the principles of the Ten Commandments. We know it's good. But though it describes the good life, it cannot impart it to us. In fact, the law simply shows us what we lack. We lack the good life. We lack righteousness. Command shows us to be sinners. No, it puts a spotlight on us so that we can see our true state. I enjoy kind of cream cakes. I ate a lot of cake yesterday. Quite often, cake then falls into my beard, and I can't see it. Maybe you can see it, but I can't see it. I need someone to put a mirror in front of me, then I can see a cream face, you know? That's what the Lord does. It shows us what the problem is. It shows us what I need to be, but am not. Romans 3 explains, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
the law says we, we, we shouldn't covet, but we do. We want someone else's house or car or career or haircut or football skills. The, the law says we should love God with all that's within us and worship only him, but actually we love ourselves and other things and direct our worship elsewhere. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the law of Moses, along with the annual festivals and the monthly new moons and the weekly Sabbaths, are not only pointing to our need. They also point to God's gift. They reveal what righteousness looks like and they were always meant to direct our attention to the righteous one who would come and meet all of our needs. All the scriptures from Genesis onwards are not telling us how to better ourselves. Rather, they are telling us who God is, what our need is, and how he will perfectly meet our need through the promised Messiah. Telling us of the Savior who will give us the good life that we were intended for. So Romans 3.23 does not finish all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says and are freely justified by his grace in the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. As Jesus explains in Matthew 5 and verse 17, he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He has fulfilled righteousness, and Jesus perfectly embodies the good life described in the law of Moses. You see, all of the annual festivals and monthly celebrations and weekly Sabbaths were pointing to him. They, they were designed to be prompt to faith in Jesus. That's why Paul describes in verse 17 of the passage in Colossians 2, describes them as a shadow. Now, what do shadows do? Shadows point you to something of substance that's there. You know, if you go I don't know, stand outside the Leaning Tower of Pisa, you don't say, oh, what an amazing shadow. The shadow draws your eyes to something really worth fixing your eyes on, something of substance, something that's real. So it is with the old covenant requirements, such as the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbaths. So the annual festivals, they involved sacrifice and feasting and celebration because they were pointing to Jesus who would make the ultimate sacrifice offering up himself for us so that we may feast upon him as the bread of life and celebrate in him who gives us life to the full. The monthly new moon celebrations were pointing to Jesus in whom every new beginning is possible, the, the God of new seasons. The weekly Sabbaths was pointing to Jesus in whom true rest for heart and soul and mind and body is found. So the law, with all its external observances and moral demands, is fulfilled in Jesus, it was always pointing to him. He is the substance. And on the cross, as Jesus offered up his perfect life, he cancelled the Lord's charge against us. This is why in verse 14 of Colossians 2, it says, Jesus cancelled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. It's gone. It is finished. Striving can cease. The righteousness described in and demanded by the law is now fulfilled in Christ who's given as a gift for free. The good life described in the law 
is the life of faith in Jesus. And so Romans 10 verse 4 can say, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. God gives us righteousness in Christ. He gives us belonging in Christ. We simply receive that gift by faith. Faith is our yes please response to God's gift to us. He gives us Jesus and faith says yes please. Yes, please. As Romans 8 verse 1 can say now, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So salvation is not at all based on our performance, it's based on his. And belonging is not found within ourselves, it's found outside of ourselves, in him. So you don't need to shore up your belonging by the things that you do. You cannot, you must not, We simply rest in Jesus and treasure him as God's gift to us. So important, it's so important, church, that we continue to get hold of this. Martin Luther said this. He said, so then, have we nothing to do to obtain righteousness? No, nothing at all. Perfect righteousness is to do nothing. But simply rest in what Jesus has done. It's all gift It's all of grace. But we so often slip back into thinking, surely there's something we must contribute to this. You know? That's why Martin Luther goes on to to rightly say of God's free gift, we have to constantly teach it, repeat it, and work it out in practice. Anyone who does not understand this righteousness or cherish it in the heart and conscience will continually be buffeted by fears and depression. Nothing gives peace like this Passive righteousness. Are you buffeted by fears and, and, and depression because of understanding you don't, you don't hit the mark? Rest in what Jesus has done for you. God offers you Jesus. Do you want him? Faith says, yes, please. Yes, please. Jesus is the sufficient ground for your belonging. We simply trust in him. It's not that what we do doesn't matter. No, it matters immensely. It's that it's not the ground of our belonging. Jesus is freely given. So what are the external to-dos that you and I can feel tempted to lean on? What is it for you? Maybe it's good works, charity giving, constant anxious confessions, maybe Christian activities. Perhaps it's how fit you are, how organized your finances are, how orderly your home is, how well-behaved your kids are, or how successful your work is, or how far you've got along your recovery. Now, all of these valuable things, none of them the standard upon which your grounds for righteousness and belonging rest. It's in Christ alone who's given to you. So do not allow anyone to pass judgment on you based on external performances or religious activities. Hold fast to Jesus. But people can also undermine our sense of belonging based on internal experiences as well as external performances. Okay, so in verse 18, Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Again, asceticism referring largely to to false humility, thought mostly to do with fasting. 
See, it's someone going around fasting lots and wanting everyone to know, but pretending that it's no big deal. Here Paul is saying uh, that claims of spiritual experience can sometimes be ways in which people feel undermined or disqualified or excluded. The poor Colossians were not only buffeted by talk of what they ought to do, but also by experiences they must have, like worship of angels, which which refers probably to worshipping in angelic ways, as if alongside angels, or spectacular visions or dramatic spiritual experiences. The suggestion is that certain believers are set apart from others and more qualified based on their experiences. Yet Paul says that such claims come from puffed up people with ungodly minds. Paul is not against spiritual experiences. He's familiar with them. In in 2 Corinthians 12, he alludes to having an experience when he was taken up to the third heaven. Now, I I, I don't know what that really means. and it, It looks like he's not even so sure, but it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good. But he was reluctant to speak about such experiences because he didn't want anyone to feel inadequate or to take their eyes off of Jesus. In fact, in that same chapter, he'd rather speak about his weaknesses because that's a level playing field. We've all got those, okay? And he'd rather talk of Christ and how nothing compares to the surpassing greatness of knowing him. It is Jesus who moves Paul's emotions and stirs his affections and captivates his minds and drives his holiness. So he would rather boast all day of Christ as God's free gift available to all than speak at length of spiritual experiences that might isolate him from other believers. See, Paul was familiar with the tendency amongst Christians to become preoccupied with personal spiritual experiences. That can become very self-centered. He addressed this in his letter to the Corinthians. Fleming Rutledge, she explains that um, the Corinthian Christians were heavily into an individualistic, self-involved notion of the Christian life, which had a pernicious and negative effect on their community as a whole. She continues, Paul sets the cross in opposition to these tendencies. His letter addresses the problem of aggressive, self-promoting spirituality in the congregation. As in today's environment, religion and and spirituality are in. The cross, however, remains forever out. Once again, we, we tend to curve in on ourselves. If not, the things we must do, then the experiences we want to have but it is Christ and in Christ alone that we meet God and so true spirituality is found in him and it is at the cross of Christ that the glory of God is most clearly revealed Jesus calls his crucifixion his moment to be glorified why because it is at the cross of Christ that we see the holiness of God demonstrated and the justice of God vindicated and the horror of our sin exposed and removed. God's perfect righteousness provided, his blood shed, the law satisfied, death defeated, life poured out, the love of God displayed. All this is seen at the cross of Christ where we are all invited to encounter God, to see Christ crucified for you is the essence of true spirituality. That is where the Holy Spirit always wants to lead us, 
to see Jesus. The Spirit takes what is Christ and makes it known to us. It tells us that in John's Gospel. So let's not fall into the trap of making experiential spirituality the grounds for our qualification. This does happen in, in Christian circles. It can take many forms, kind of boasting in visions, overemphasizing certain spiritual gifts, elevating particular personalities, suggesting prosperity is the sign of God's favor on your life, preferring dramatic testimonies that end up making more of the individual than Jesus. All these things can leave believers feeling disqualified because they obscure Christ rather than lifting him up. Anytime there's more emphasis on something other than Jesus and his sufficient work on the cross, there's a problem. Maybe it's talk about gold dust and angels in the room at conferences. I'm not saying those things aren't real, but I'm saying they're not the real treasure. They're not the grounds of our confidence or belonging or meeting with God. Give me the presence of God over gold dust. Give me Jesus over angels. Let me boast in nothing but Christ and him crucified. So let no one disqualify you when he invites you to come through him. Real belonging is not found in the experiences we have or the things we do. It's found in Christ alone. How about real growth then? How do we grow in holiness and in faith? Well, real growth happens by enjoying Jesus together. It's much the same as real belonging. Real growth happens by enjoying Jesus, and the context is together. Verse 19, Paul says, Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So firstly, growth comes by holding fast to Jesus, the head of the church, from whom the whole body is nourished. Jesus is the source of all our growth. And so if we are to grow as believers, it must be by holding fast to him. He nourishes us just in the same way as the head takes in food and drink and oxygen so that the whole body can be nourished. So by holding fast to Jesus, do we grow? Keeping on enjoying him and receiving from him. Again, that's the posture of faith. It is to receive from him. So, so what is holding fast to Christ? What is it? What is holding fast to the head? Well, Colossians 2 verse 9 says, In Christ, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form, and you've been given fullness in Christ. Holding fast to him is applying to ourselves all that is true for him and all that he is for us. We need to apply day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, his sufficiency for us. Let me tell you what that looks like for me. How do I hold fast to Christ? Well, I am forever reminding myself of what is true of Jesus and personalizing it as a gift to me. I do this throughout the day. I need to do this all the time. So I'm forever saying, the Bible says, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's my Passover lamb who's removed my sin from me. So I won't hold on to it anymore. The Bible says he is the son of righteousness, risen with healing in his wings. And he is my righteousness, shining upon me so that I can be secure in him, never condemned. He is the bread of life. 
The Bible says that. So he can satisfy my deepest desires and longings better than a job, a relationship, a TV program, a sexual experience, a, a, a reputation, a woodload of cash. The Bible says he's the resurrection and the life. So he's my life. I have nothing to fear in death. The Bible says he's the good shepherd. He will lead me through whatever danger or difficulty the day holds. The Bible says he's the Alpha and the Omega, so my life is wrapped up in him from first to last. The Bible says he's the Prince of Peace, so I don't have to fight my anxieties alone. I can simply trust in him, give them to him, and receive a peace that is not natural to me, but comes from him. He, the Bible says, is the true vine, so I don't have to make myself fruitful in my work or my ministry or my life. I simply enjoy him. And he brings the fruitfulness. Hold fast to Jesus. And as we take hold of him more, and we enjoy him more, and we see him more, we find our hearts turn to him more, we love him more, we don't want anything else that will distract us from him. And so you grow in holiness, not through regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, but through enjoying Jesus. How can we learn to hold fast in these ways? Well, part of it is getting the Bible into you. You can't grow without his word nourishing you by telling you who Jesus is. Maybe you'll say, but hang on, Mike, isn't that, aren't you adding a to-do here? Is this not doing what you said we shouldn't do? No, 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 it's not that. Because your invitation to the scriptures is not in order to earn something by your reading efforts. Rather, it is to receive what has already been given to you in Christ. So we go to the Bible not to earn, but to receive. Not to impress him, but to see him. And in this, and this is not something that we we have to do by our own and keep to ourselves. No, we give the truth to one another. We we recommend resources to one another. Now, some of us are just not readers. We're, We're more listeners well, I've got a whole load of resources I would love to recommend you. I'm doing a lot of listening at the moment of little chunks of the Bible that's feeding my soul, doing me good, helping me to see him. We enjoy Jesus together. The growth that comes from God described in verse 19 of our passage is one whereby we are nourished by Christ our head and knit together as one. So real growth happens in community. To grow... I don't need a new spiritual experience. I don't need more rules. I need you. And you need me. Without one another, we will very easily start losing our hold of the head of Christ. But together, we hold on to him as God's gift to us in our all-sufficient need. This is so vital. This is why it's vital we don't become isolated from each other. It's why small groups are such a big part of who we are as Oasis Church, gathering in the middle of the week to remind ourselves truths in the Bible about who Jesus is for you and for me. Sometimes we can think that in order to really grow, I need to get some time alone, away from everyone, and just be on my own. And now, of course, there's a, there's a place for that, and I regularly enjoy those moments. But isolation should never be the sustained pattern of our Christian lives or the expected context of our greatest growth. We need each other, confessing our sins to each other, preaching the gospel to each other, 
serving each other's needs, encouraging one another, listening to each other's fears, addressing each other's doubts, cheering each other's successes, lifting each other's eyes to Jesus. As we enjoy him together, we together grow in him. Grow in him. A community holding fast to Christ together is the context where real belonging and real growth happens. That's why in verses 20 to 23, Paul says, don't go back to regulations or self-effort or or man-made religion. Go to Christ. He is God's gift to us. He is God the Son. In him is found all belonging. In him is found all growth. Take hold of him together. We're going to going to do that now in one of the ways that God's provided for us to do it which is by taking communion I'm going to welcome back up Sarah and the band and we're going to sing a song and then we're going to break bread together and as we do that it's demonstrating two things it's demonstrating I am not going to rest in my performance or in any spiritual experience, but I'm going to rest in Christ alone as the one in whom I I belong and through whom I can come to God. And so if you're not a believer, if you're here and you say, actually, I'm looking in, I don't really believe this, I'm I'm kind of interested, then I'd ask you, please don't don't take the the juice and the bread. Um, But maybe you're here and you're saying, yeah, I, I want Jesus. For me, it's a yes, please to God. I want him even for the first time, then, then take the bread and the cup when it comes round. And we're going to celebrate it together because it's a moment to together hold fast to our head. The offer is boldly to approach the throne of a holy God cannot do that based on your performance. You cannot do that by resting on something within yourself, some experience. You can do that through Jesus and through Jesus alone, who's been offered up for you and for me. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the night he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we take the bread and we say, yes, please to God and receive Jesus by faith. says in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes the cup represents the blood of Jesus shed for you and I that we may know no condemnation by being in Christ So with glad hearts we say, yes, please, and receive the cup. Jesus, we worship you. 
Jesus, we say you alone are God and you alone are everything that we need to belong to the people of God. You alone are our sufficiency. In you alone do we place all of our confidence, not in ourselves, nothing at all of us. We place our confidence entirely in you, in this passive righteousness that's been freely given because you've offered yourself for us. And Lord, with all my heart, I say yes to you. You are a wonderful God.